Well, last Lord's Day, Pastor Enro um, took us into chapter 15, the Gospel of John, and he covered verses 1 through 6. And so initially, I thought I would pick up in verse 7 and maybe work down to verse 11. But as I got to thinking more about verse 7, Jesus says something there is very profound. It's very amazing. It's also something that can be twisted beyond belief, tortured. And so the more I got to thinking about it, I ended up spending more time going back and thinking through verses 1 through 6 to make sure that we properly understand what's being said there so that in turn we rightly understand verse 7. And so basically what I ended up with was a sermon that's going to overlap some of what Enro did last Lord's Day. But I think it's important to reinforce what is being said there at the beginning of this chapter. Because again, as I've noted, as we move on to verse 7 and following, it's key that we understand those verses in their proper context. So, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 15. Now for our reading, we'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 11. But again, as we noted, we'll only get up to about verse 7 today. Hear now the word of our Lord, John 15, starting verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time as we gather here today to approach you with open hearts and minds, ready to receive instruction from your word, guidance through your word, divine wisdom. We humbly request that you prepare our hearts now to be receptive to that word. Grant us strength to set aside any distractions or worries today, allowing us to be fully present in this moment. Lord, may you open our ears to receive your truth and let your grace transform us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, as we reflect on these words from John 15, our Savior communicates a very profound message by likening himself to the vine and his followers as branches within that vine. As stated in verses 1 and 2, he declares, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, this discussion took place on the night before his death, and it was directed at the 11 disciples. It came after they had shared the Passover meal and established the Holy Supper. And after leaving that upper room, they quietly went through the streets of Jerusalem and eventually ended up in a secluded spot on Mount Olives, which overlooked the Kidron Valley. And so with his loyal disciples gathered around him, Jesus continued to speak, revealing the metaphor of the vine and branches with the words, I am the true vine and my, vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And in this analogy, Christ first warned about the danger of not bearing fruit and then shared the key to bearing fruit abundantly. So first, let's start by examining the danger of not producing any fruit. Our Lord uses the analogy of a vine to emphasize the deep connection between himself and his church. Just as a vine and its branches have a close and inseparable relationship drawing from the same life force and nourishing sap 
so it is with Christ and his followers. The very life that resides in Christ also resides in individuals who make up his body. Even the weakest believer is connected to this source and derives all his spiritual nourishment from Christ. And while Jesus serves as the true vine, the source of his people's spiritual life and productivity, his father takes on the role of the vineyard keeper. He is not only the owner of the vineyard, but also its caretaker. And our Savior then goes on to explain how his father tends to his vineyard, saying, Every branch in me that fails to produce fruit, he removes. And every branch that does produce fruit, he prunes it so that it may yield even more fruit. Now, in order to help you better understand the idea between branch here, it can be more accurately described as a graft. Picture a branch or a shoot or a young twig that has been cut from its original plant and then attached or grafted into a productive vine. This analogy serves to clarify the message being conveyed by Christ here and addresses a common misconception, the belief that some branches supposedly connected to the vine can still be removed and discarded. Christ is not suggesting here that those who have true saving faith in him can be permanently lost. Instead, he presents an image of a vine dresser or gardener who examines his vineyard to evaluate the success of the grafts. And how does this gardener determine the success of the grafts? Well, it's pretty straightforward, by the presence or absence of fruit. Any graft, that is any twig or branch that has been attached to the vine that lacks fruit is then pruned with a knife, thrown to the ground, later to be gathered up with other fruitless branches to be burned. The absence of fruit serves as clear evidence to the gardener that the graft did not truly become one with the vine. And so the message here is quite clear and unambiguous by our Lord. In the visible church, there are many members who openly declare their loyalty to Christ. But even though they may give the impression of being believers, their true nature becomes evident when we see a glaring lack of actions and behaviors that glorify God in their lives. And so these nominal Christians, that is, they're just Christians in name only, are eventually removed, similar to dead branches, and eventually discarded. And so when we look at the visible church as a vine, we encounter two types of branches, those that bear fruit, and those that do not. Well, this in turn certainly raises the question, well, how can these unprodu uh, unproductive branches be considered in Christ? And so let's delve into that a little bit. Jesus does, in fact, mention the unproductive branches as being in some way associated with him when he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. However, Christ is not referring to a deep spiritual connection or to stick to the words of the analogy, the grafting of these branches into himself because such a connection will inevitably lead to fruit bearing. Instead, what he is addressing is merely an external affiliation or you could say a superficial profession of faith. Beloved, in the visible church, many people have a connection to Christ through rituals like baptism, church membership, some even Lord's Supper. However, for many of these people, this connection is simply superficial. Though these individuals may participate in the outward privileges of being part of the visible covenant community and the promises of the covenant have been symbolically confirmed through the sacrament of baptism, Nevertheless, these promises hold little significance for these people. God's promise of salvation through faith in Christ and his completed work holds little value to them. They have not actually embraced Christ through faith. 
And Christ is not the invaluable treasure for which they're willing to give up everything in their life for. And they're coming to church and participating in the rituals. It's just an act that they do. For whatever various reasons, you could think of a million reasons why people may do this. Some people may just be bored on Sundays, want something to do. They may have good friends or maybe family that they want to stay connected to. Maybe they just enjoy hanging around decent people. There's all kinds of reasons, but for whatever the reason, they don't actually believe Christ's word. They don't believe the word that is preached. They don't embrace Christ. And they don't seek to obey him. Furthermore, they tend to overlook the fact that within every covenant, there are two distinct elements. First, there is the covenant-making God who declares, I am your God, and I am ready to save you if you turn to me in repentance and faith. So this represents the promise that's given to us. However, there is also an expectation of a new obedience that the Lord requires and involves adhering to the Lord, placing trust in him and loving him, all while simultaneously turning away from the world, crucifying the old sinful nature and embarking on a new path of holiness. And these outcomes, such as turning away from the world and crucifying the old nature, are not evident in everyone who claims to be a Christian. And so similar to certain branches on the vine, these individuals might exhibit some outward signs of life, maybe some healthy green leaves, but they do not produce any fruit. Or if there's any fruit at all, it's not, it's fruit of the wrong kind. Much like the Israelites in the Old Testament who yielded wild grapes, these individuals, as mentioned in Revelation 3, may have a reputation for appearing to be alive, but in the eyes of God, they are spiritually devoid of life. In Revelation 3, Jesus says to the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Beloved, it is truly a dire situation to be a fruitless branch in the vine. This condition is even more sad than being a person who has never encountered Christ or someone who, having heard about Christ, doesn't openly profess him. These folks are still going to be judged, but at least they're not regarded as hypocrites. The individuals referred to in verse 2 are members of the church who openly declare some sort of unity to Christ, and thus they have some form of connection to him. And yet they do not generally understand him, nor have embraced him in a way that leads to salvation. And beloved, such individuals have always been around. It's always been a reality. Even during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry and that of the apostles, Despite the insightful teachings of our Lord and the watchful care of his apostles in guiding the churches, there were many false professing believers in the early church. And some even managed to assume leadership roles within the Christian community. Simon the magician is one such example. Although he went through the ritual of baptism and claimed to accept Philip's message, we come to realize that he had no true part or interest in the matter because his heart did not align with God's purposes. We read about this in Acts 8. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This example of Simon is especially relevant to our text today, because notice that Simon is the one who thought he could have what Jesus promised. 
Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Give me this power also so that on anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon thought he could have this without actually abiding in Christ. And thus Peter says to him, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right. Repent of your wickedness. Another example of a branch devoid of fruit is seen in Demas. Paul writes about him, 2 Timothy 4, he says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. But perhaps the most sorrowful example is what we've seen here in this Gospel of John, and that's the example of Judas. Judas spent three years with Jesus in the closest possible association with Jesus, lived with him night and day. But ultimately, it turned out to be a shallow outward connection and nothing more. And so to all such individuals who lack fruitfulness and maintain only a nominal belief, Jesus gives these solemn words, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And while these words relate to the ultimate judgment, where all hidden truths will be revealed, and every hypocrite, hypocrite exposed, many people will reveal their true selves long before they ever hear the sound of the final trumpet. We also see this principle in the parable of the sower. In Matthew 13, our Lord says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, Immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, Demas, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed, indeed, bears fruit, and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And then we go down to verse 36. We read that when he left the crowds and went into the house, his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the seed of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sown them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. And just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. You hear that? The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all who just simply didn't make a profession of faith. No, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Disobedient and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So, Beloved, these are significant words from our Lord here in John 15. And so we must pose this question to ourselves. Are we productive branches in Christ, or are we unproductive ones? Paul would write to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you have failed to meet the test. Beloved, we must scrutinize ourselves because only a faith that yields love, a faith that bears fruit, is of true saving faith. Well, this then leads me to my second point. 
which is this crucial factor in producing an abundance of fruit. A central theme addressed in the Bible is the spiritual advancement and development of Christians, their growth. You see, the apostles emphasized not just the essential first steps of repentance and faith, which are unquestionably foundational, but they also underscored the importance of moving towards maturity. They encouraged believers to strive for perfection, as we observe, for example, in the guidance given to the Hebrew Christians. In Hebrews 6.1, there is a sense of frustration expressed when dealing with believers who have not reached a much higher level of spiritual growth than what they currently found themselves in at that time. And so the author reproves them, saying, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the words in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And yet, beloved, this still goes on today, to this day. As pastors endeavor to nurture and strengthen the church, they often discover that numerous believers appear to remain, to remain in a state of spiritual infancy, childishness, immaturity. There are relatively few who obtain to the maturity of spiritual fathers and mothers in Christ. And so why does this absence of spiritual growth continue within the visible church? Well, one fundamental and root cause that we can gain for here from John 15 is that many believers do not uphold a near and consistent relationship with Christ as they should. What does the expression abiding in Christ signify? And why is this practice essential for spiritual growth and maturity? In the allegory found in John 15, Jesus depicts himself as the true vine. And he portrays believers as branches within that vine. And the main lesson conveyed here is that a believer's spiritual growth and development are profoundly rooted in their connection with Christ. It's not just about their spiritual beginnings, but also the progress and growth of that existence that depends on their relationship with Christ. Just as branches of a vine rely on the vine as the source of their life and nourishment, believers also derive their very existence and growth from their union with Christ. And in verse 5, Jesus declares, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nevertheless, he proceeds to say, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. As verse 2 implies, it is the vine dresser or the caretaker of the vineyard himself who eliminates those unproductive branches using his pruning knife. The branches that bear fruit are spared, but they still undergo pruning, which is meant to eliminate anything in our lives that hinders the production of genuine fruit. So what are some of these fruits that the vine dresser is looking for? Well, fruits like a contrite heart, Humility, a spirit filled with remorse for wrongdoing, repentance, a profound sense of sorrow over our sins, a humble self-awareness, faith in Christ, a reliance on his atoning sacrifice for sins, and a life characterized by holiness, purity. These are some of the fruits that indicate a person is genuinely and intimately connected to Christ. Love for God, love for his word, his commandments. Love for fellow believers are also qualities present in fruitful, 
branches. And it is said of such branches that the vine dresser prunes them from time to time, as there is always something in every believer that requires trimming, even if we may not always realize the necessity of the pruning process. Moreover, we often wonder why some Christians go through tough times while others seem to have an easier life. It's something we've all noticed. We meet Christians who are deeply dedicated to God, living with strong faith and passion for the Lord, and we admire their example. However, we can't understand why some of these faithful individuals have to face so many challenges. Things don't seem to be going well for them. And we question why God allows these Christians to experience difficulties. But what does the owner and caretaker of the vineyard say? He says, I, the Lord, examine the heart. And so it's crucial to remember, beloved, that the Lord comprehends the hidden depths of our hearts. He knows our hidden sins, our hidden transgressions. He can only observe or we can only observe a person's external deeds and based on those we may conclude that a person is righteous and often that conclusion is valid to some extent a christian's character is manifested through their fruits through their life as jesus taught and it is through these fruits that we can discern who is a believer in him and who is not more than likely however there may be inner conflicts and strong temptations that we are unaware of in a person's heart. But know this, God is fully aware. He sees them, and as a result, he occasionally has to use the pruning knife even on his beloved children. He disciplines them to cleanse them from the vices that hinder their spiritual growth. And we may not always grasp why God takes these actions, but he knows the reasons. And sometimes a believer even comes to understand them as well eventually. Ultimately, and the key is this, God wants his people to be fruitful, to grow, to mature, to spiritually produce. And so what happens when God uses discipline like a pruning knife? Well, look at Israel as an example. God allowed them to go through captivity because of their sins, subjecting them to strong correction. And he predicted the result of his strict dealings with them. As mentioned in Ezekiel 6.9, he says, Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be lo loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Self-loathing is where sanctification begins. When we see our sins and our corruption in light of God's holiness, we feel deep shame within ourselves. And we should question, Lord, how can I entertain such wicked thoughts? How can I commit such terrible deeds or say such terrible words, even to those I care about? You, Lord, deserve to be served with a pure and holy heart, but there's still so much sin in me, so much pride, so much lust. But this self-loathing doesn't end there. It should then lead to another important outcome, a profound appreciation and embrace, embracing of Christ. A believer who recognizes their own flaws and realizes their inability to do good becomes acutely aware then of now their need for Christ and for his work. Naturally, we often fail to recognize our need for Christ due to our inherent disposition. Even after we are justified, we often rely on our own efforts. We understand that we need Christ for justification and to be reconciled with God. But then after that, when it comes to sanctification, we tend to think, well, now it's all on me to perform. However, the Lord shows us how deeply corrupted we still are, even as believers. 
we find ourselves echoing the words of Paul in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And so to make us profoundly aware of this, God prunes us. He uses this pruning knife, which can be painful. The gardener cuts off our self-reliance and our trust in worldly comforts. He removes our dependence on self-righteousness and false sources of comfort. And only when we are then completely detached from these things does Christ become exceedingly precious in every aspect of life. And so, beloved, it is only at that moment and not until then that we generally comprehend the significance of Christ's words when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, now that finally and lastly leads me to verse 7, where Jesus now transitions to the topic of prayer. He says in verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, some people may argue that with verse 7, Jesus is shifting topic series, shifting subject matter. However, I don't believe that's the case. In fact, I would, argue, I, would, I would make the case that arguing that is exactly what gets people into trouble with verse 7 and how they end up torturing this and twisting it. Jesus is not moving away from the imagery of the vineyard and the vines at all in verse 7 just because he's now talking about prayer. In fact, he seamlessly connects his teachings on prayer in verse 7 to the same theme and illustration that we've seen in verses 1 through 6. Notice what he begins verse 7 with. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He is continuing the analogy of abiding in him as a branch abides in the vine. So that being the case, what then can we infer from this? Well, we can infer, I think, two things. One is that prayer serves as both a means to bear fruit, and then more importantly, secondly, prayer is a form of bearing fruit itself. In other words, one of the fruits we can expect to see in the Christian life is the fruit of prayer. And the type of prayer Jesus describes is one that is intimate, it's open, and it's bold. Notice what he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. When we face challenges and needs in our lives, how do we address them? We address them through prayer. When we find ourselves lacking the strength or resources to bear fruit as we should, how, what can we do? We can pray. However, please don't misunderstand me as suggesting that prayer is only reserved for emergencies or as a fallback option when things don't go as you planned. What I want to emphasize is that in verse 7, Jesus portrays prayer as the natural and effective outcome of our union with him. In other words, if you are abiding in Christ, if you are genuinely connected to him as the vine, then you will pray. It will be an inevitable part of your life. You will pray as a necessity. And as your relationship with the Lord deepens, your inclination to pray will deepen and grow as well. If we are in Christ, we will pray. And if we pray in Christ, Jesus assures us that our prayers will be heard and answered. Verse 7 contains an amazing promise. You can ask for whatever you desire and it will be granted. However, this promise comes with a significant condition. It is only valid if you are remaining in Christ and if his teachings are deeply embedded in your heart. That's where you have to read verse 7 in light of everything that's come before it. And if you don't, you're going to get this wrong. You're going to end up in this crazy name it, claim it, nonsense, and all the rest of it. 
Now, while we may be tempted to introduce various qualifications or explanations to limit the scope of this promise, it truly is as it appears. It is a very powerful pledge from our Lord. But the only condition you and I need to meet is the one already established by Christ. If you abide in Christ and his words reside in you, this promise is his unequivocal assurance. Ask whatever you desire and it will be done. To have your prayers answered in this manner, you must remain in him. However, if you do abide in him, your prayers can and will be answered in this very way. To pray and to pray in a way that produces results, you must be in Christ and you must continue to stay in him. Prayer is not an entitlement for us. It's a privilege. It's a privilege that's granted to the people of the covenant. No one in this world, whether they believe in God or not, should presume that God is obligated to listen to their prayers. Why should God be bound in such a manner? The only thing binding God to us is his own promise. He has made that promise to us, and thus we can expect that because he is a faithful God, a truth-speaking God, and a covenant-keeping God, he will honor his promise and hear us when we pray. However, it's crucial to understand that if God were to choose never to hear our prayers again, he would not be acting unjustly. God does not owe us anything. His only obligation is rooted in his own promise to us. And what is remarkable about the covenant is that God, the sovereign Lord, who is entirely self-sufficient and needs nothing, has bound himself to us. He has entered into an obligation with his people, and we are bound to him in return. And this unique and unmerited relationship with God through the covenant was not a necessity for God, given his divine nature, but it is absolutely essential for our own well-being. As sinners with no inherent righteousness or standing in the courts of heaven, we are at best just creatures. And so we cannot pray effectively unless we are first in Christ. An unregenerate voice cannot penetrate the heavens or reach God's throne room. Without the presence of the Holy Spirit, we lack the moral and spiritual capacity to pray with impact. Therefore, unless we are united with Christ that can offer prayers through him, prayer becomes just an empty exercise. This is why, for example, we pray in the name of Jesus. It's a recognition that we can only approach God in heaven through the authority of Christ and his mediation. It's an acknowledgement that we have no inherent right to communicate with God independently because on our own we are sinful and disobedient beings who have forfeited any such privilege. But this right is reinstated in Christ. It is granted to us through Christ. He has bound himself to us through his promise. And he has not only restored the privilege and opportunity to enter into the heavenly throne room, but he has also adopted us as his own children. And you possess it not because you are inherently exceptional or simply due to your creation, but because of the covenant. The covenant that was initiated and secured by the blood of the Son. Often when you bow in prayer, you might not ponder this truth. Most of the time as you're praying, your thoughts are just preoccupied with what you're praying about. However, behind every prayer you offer, whether it's brief and ordinary or long and extensive, never forget the underlying reality, and that is your union with Christ. This is why prayer is effective. It's the sole reason prayer is even possible, because you're in Christ. And so what Christ is saying in this verse here in John 15 can be summed up as follows. Stay connected to me. Abide in me. If you remain in a close relationship with me and my teachings remain a part of you, 
then you will have the ability to pray effectively. And so consider this. Are you living your life in alignment with Christ and his commandments so that you are qualified to pray through him? If you're walking in disobedience, you should feel the weight of your wrongdoing and recognize the separation it creates between you and God when you pray. Now, often over the years, just as little youth minister stand I did back in the day and even to now, you know, I've encountered situations where people come to me and say, you know, they admittedly acknowledge that they're currently living in sin and they're fully aware that it's wrong and they persist in it without any remorse or repentance and they express a sense of guilt. In such cases, feeling guilty is entirely appropriate. They should feel that. But then these individuals might also go on to express feeling like there's a barrier in their prayer life. And it's highly likely that such a barrier does in fact exist. So the key question here is, are you abiding in Christ in such a way that you can experience the intimacy of communion that God offers through the covenant of Christ, enabling you to pray with both humility and confidence? But also notice this in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Notice that with this union, there, there is a mutual indwelling. If someone claims to have a relationship with Christ, but totally disregards his teachings, totally disregards his commandments, John asserts that such a person is deceived and dishonest. Similarly, if someone believes they can continue to expect favorable responses and assistance through prayer while knowingly living in disobedience to Christ's word, they are profoundly mistaken. Leon Morris provides some valuable insight into this. He emphasizes, he says, we should not underestimate the significance of the words, my words. The teachings of Jesus hold great importance and should not be overlooked in favor of fostering religious sentiments. When believers abide in Christ and Christ's teachings remain within them, they draw as close to Christ as possible. Consequently, their prayers align with God's will and they receive full answers to their prayers. You see, God's word must dwell within you for you and me to even discern what words we should offer to God in prayer. How can we know what to pray if we do not first have Christ's words within us guiding us in prayer? The word that Jesus employs here for his words is not the more common Greek word, laudos, which is often used in a broader conceptual sense. This word, frequently found in the New Testament, refers to individual words or specific sayings. I don't want to overemphasize the distinction between these words. They share a common theme. However, the distinction Jesus may intend is that he is not solely the it is not solely the broad concept of his teaching that should abide in us, but also the precise words he conveys to us. You see, individual sayings collectively form the broader teaching, which constitutes the word of Christ in its entirety. Sometimes we may be tempted to excuse our neglect or disobedience by presuming we are faithful to the overall teaching of the Lord. We might think that it is only the broad concepts we need to adhere to, as if focusing on the big picture is sufficient. We might reason that we're faithful to his word, even if we overlooked or neglect certain specific sayings of Christ. Jesus, however, would assert, if my words are abiding in you, then ask and it will be done. Jesus did not convey, just convey abstract concepts. He communicated them through specific words. He unveiled truths that demand not only hearing, but also belief and obedience. This is an integral aspect of abiding. It is not merely God's voice we must hear, but the very words of God that we must hear and embrace. If you're only interested in the concepts of Christian truth and find satisfaction in reading systematic theology or books about God, you will likely find that your prayer life suffers as a result. There is nothing more beneficial for your prayer life than immersing yourself in the actual words of Jesus himself.
unquote. So, beloved, devote time to immerse yourselves in the words of God contained in your Bible. And while theological and devotional resources can be valuable, never neglect the Bible for their sake. It's essential that Christ's words abide in you to enable you to pray in the manner he instructs you to pray. This underscores the profound synergy between prayer and scripture. Scripture teaches us how to commune with God and prayer is the fruit and privilege of that communion. Christ's teachings guide us in prayer. And, we, and as we pray in Christ, he assures us that the Father will answer. This is encapsulated in his words, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Even though we are planted in God's life-giving vineyard and connected to the life-giver Christ, there will always be things that we lack. This isn't because Christ is insufficient, but because the Father loves us too much to let us have everything we need all at once without experiencing our dependence upon him. God often withholds certain things from us to prompt us to pray, teaching us humility and our need for him. He doesn't necessarily grant everything we want, but he does provide everything we genuinely need. Now, there seems to be two approaches to prayer. Some find it easier to pray in a time of crisis, while others struggle to pray during such times, but then they excel in prayer when everything's going well. Nevertheless, both experiences teach us to recognize our dependence upon God, upon his grace. This promise in John 15, 7 is both broad and it's strong. And you must believe it because it's what Jesus said. And while it does not mean God will fulfill all your worldly desires, it does guarantee that he will answer prayers that align with his will. Your desires will be shaped by your abiding in Christ and in his word, leading to prayers that God always answers. Prayer and the word are deeply intertwined. Scripture informs your prayers, guiding you in what to ask for. As you abide in Christ, your desires will align with his will, resulting in prayers that reflect your deepening and growing relationship with Christ. Remember that God eagerly invites you to share your wants and needs with him and pray with faith, knowing that your prayers are heard and will be answered because of your union with Christ. Well, in closing, we have heard what it means to be either unfruitful or fruitful branches in Christ. This then leads us to ask the question, what category do we fall into? Can we identify any fruits in our lives that bring glory to God? Perhaps after hearing a sermon like this, you see little to no fruits, especially not the genuine spiritual kind. Does this imply that you're still strangers to God's grace? In other words, if you don't observe any fruits within yourselves, does it necessarily mean that you're not truly connected to Christ divine? Well, answering that question is not so simple. Recall what our confession states about assurance. It says true believers may have the assurance of their salvation divers ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence and preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light, yet they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. Now think about nature. When a corn stalk is full of grain, it bends down. When a tree is full of fruit, its branches hang low. So if you ever feel spiritually empty, 
and sad about it. Don't lose hope. Feeling sorry and regretful for not being spiritually fruitful can be a sign from God. But it shouldn't be the only proof of your connection with him. It's good to realize your shortcomings and feel sorry for your mistakes. But don't rely solely on your sorrow as evidence of your relationship with God. It's an even greater blessing to realize that Jesus is the source of all your fruitfulness. And so repent. Repentance, conversion, crying out to God, these are the fruits of the Holy Spirit's work as he applies Christ's salvation to your life. However, he often delves deep. The Lord uses the pruning knife until you cry out, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm lost, Lord. I'm on the path to perdition. Save me. And through the Holy Spirit who reveals your lost state, you also come to see the Lord Jesus Christ. He opens your eyes to him and you begin to understand the truth of his words. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, beloved, strive to know more and more of Christ and of his grace. Abide in him, cling to him, and keep your focus on him, relying on his atoning blood. This is the true source of nourishment for the branches, the healing of our wounds, and the encouragement of our spirits. And ask yourself, how are your fruits? Do you see any growth in your life toward Christ in obedience to his commandments? Do you love his commandments? Are you striving to walk in them, depending on the Lord Jesus? Are you diligently studying the word, faithfully attending the church? And for you parents, raising your children in the fear of the Lord. These are all vital questions to ask. And may we not only witness growth, but also experience the initial work of faith and repentance, building upon that a growth in holiness. Abide in Christ. Abide in his word. Cling to him. Never take your eyes off of him. It is the blood of Christ alone, applied by his spirit, that saturates every fiber of the root of holiness in our souls, leading to the production of God-glorifying fruits. As Jesus said, herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Let's pray.